there was a like a presumed shortage of beef. I don't know if you realize that the first of Corona, you'd go in the grocery store and the the meat counters would be empty, right? There's, yeah. there's that was an issue with coronavirus shutting down packing houses. It was the there was no lack of supply. It was just the chain was yep. there was a, a bottleneck in the chain. They couldn't kill enough cattle. Packers could set the market, um, decide who they were going to get them from. There were some yards that were holding cattle for way longer than they should have. Yeah. And so that eats up on your, also you're, you're feeding these cattle longer. Right. So your cost of gain is going up while you're doing that. So people started trying to slow the, slow the consumption rate down and limit. You, you have to maintain, but when cattle are ready to go, it's like any other business, let's say for real estate or oil and gas, when you, when the market's hot, you can sell your mineral rights. You can sell that barrel of oil, or you can sell that building right then. Yeah, cattle are, are go through all these phases, so you can't sell it at that moment. You've got to wait till it's time to get to that phase. And when it's time to be to leave the feed yard to go to the packing house, you can't really hold it. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube, Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas, with a track record of transacting more than $1.6 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. The team over at Fort is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're doing a replay of Cattle Business 101 that I published in 2020. Uh, It's a really cool episode on the cattle industry from top to bottom with my friend, Rain Austin. So thanks for continuing to tune in and enjoy the show. Rain, welcome to the show. Yeah, Chris, thanks for having me. I've been so excited about this episode. <laughs> this is going to be pretty good. It should be um, lighthearted, but I mean, a little bit of info in the cattle business from my perspective, at least. Yep. And for anybody listening, Rain and I have been building this episode up for a couple months. Uh, Rain is long standing in the cattle business, both him and his family. And so we're just going to dive right into it. Rain, we just give like the cliff note kind of story of who you are and what got you into the cattle business? Yeah. So I grew up in Ringling, Oklahoma, small town west of Ardmore. My family ranches, uh, runs feeder cattle, stocker operation, probably what got me more aggressive. Uh, my family also runs a business outside of the cattle operation at home, It's which is integrated with our business. It's an order buying business. Okay. So we buy and sell feeder cattle and calves for other people. So on a commission basis. And so uh, my granddad and dad are still there, run that business, and it's a pretty active business. And so it's kind of a seven day a week business. And so you're just kind of thrown in it from day one, three years old, loading cattle trucks to when I was in high school, you know, shipping cattle for customers, local customers that uh, 
are in town there. I went to college at Oklahoma State. After getting out of college, I went to um, work at a commodity brokerage. So that's where people uh, lay off risk or speculate on the futures market for cattle, oil, grains. Um, did that for a year, but I was already working with my family business in the still in the cattle. So I started buying cattle in college from my buddies dads that farmed in Western Oklahoma, so like Kingfisher, Okarchi, what we call the wheat country. And when I, I was buying feeder cattle there on a commission basis, so making a little extra income in college, continued that business on, and I was able to go to work for Superior Livestock Auction, which is the largest video marketing auction in the world, I would say probably the largest cattle auction there is, and I managed their internet sales division. So it was a really cool uh, time Got to meet probably some of the top cattle feeders in the world or in the U.S. And uh, it was where I grew most of my relationships. Yep. Um, worked in the family business after that for a couple of years and then had the opportunity to get into oil and gas. And so that's where I am now. Here so, you are. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's start kind of early on. So a cattle goes or, or a cow or a calf, a bull goes through multiple phases during its life as it grows. It goes from one operation to the next. So let's just kind of unpack how many different phases are there and when is it time for each or at what phase is it time to move on to the next one? Yeah. So there's different, the first phase is the cow-calf phase, okay. right? And there's different levels of cow-calf producers. Um, there's somebody as far as like, you know, that could run 10,000 cows or there's kind of a mom and pop operation, as you would call it in the small town, that they've got 40 to 60 cows. That's probably not their sole income. Okay. And those two people look at things a little differently and run things. So the cow-calf phase, after that, you, you can either wean your calves and put them through like kind of a 60-day weaning process. So like they're born. They're born. Day, um, what happens? Day one. They're born day one. Okay. You know, they stay on the mother for a while okay. to, to grow. Okay. Just like just like a, a baby would. Okay. Right. And then when they're kind of three three to five hundred pounds, those guys are going to start weaning those calves off the mom. Okay. And by that, there's kind of like a little process, a preconditioning process through that. The, the cattle are something they're not used to. They they haven't probably really eaten feed. You know, you're gonna there's gonna be some illness. So they call that a sixty day weaning process, and okay. it takes about sixty days to wean them. Okay. And that that's when you know they're healthy and ready to go. So the smaller operators, they're not going to go through the weaning phase. Okay. They're just going to gather those cattle once a year, yep. sort the calves off the cows, take the calves to the cell barn. So the guys that wean them, once they're weaned, they're either going to background those cattle at home for 90 to 120 days, or they're going to sell those as weaned calves to a backgrounder. So somebody like my family, we have no cow calves. I mean, you can view a cow calf as a factory, right? Yeah. So a cow's a factory, produces the product, ships the product off. Yep. We buy the product. So we're going to buy stalker cattle or, or wean calves. We're going to take those calves through the backgrounding phase. Okay. So the 90 to 120 days, they're going to be at our place. We're going to get them healthy. And then we're going to run them through, you know, the stalker operator. We're going to either turn them on a wheat in the winter. So winter wheat, or we're going to keep them on grass in the summer. We supplement with feed in the summer. And then we retain about three quarters of ours all the way through. So once they go through the stalker phase, mm -hmm. then next they go to the feed yard phase. They go um, somewhere in the Texas Panhandle, Southwest Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, or Colorado. Those are kind of your feeding states. California has uh, one massive feed yard, but they go to the feeding phase after that. They're they're on feed for somewhere around, depending on what weight they go in, right? They're on feed for 90 to 300 days. 
and they're gaining anywhere from two and a half to four pounds a day. And then they go to the slaughterhouse or the packing plant after that. So starting at the calf, uh, cow-calf operation, you said that they're in there, they stay there until they're about three to 500 pounds. And are they only living off their mother's milk or are they eating anything else? Uh, the older they get, yeah, you'll start, you feed the cows and calves will start eating some of the feed. Yep. Right. You're going to try to get them to supplementing on some grass or feed pre weaning yep. them. Yeah. So you don't just have to, that drastic milk to feed. Yep. But calves are not going to eat feed for, um, a minute. Yeah. And so the feeds are different too. You you have kind of a weaning ration feed that's kind of a sweeter, a more, you know, protein ration that's going to get the calves to eat it versus like where you, when you're more of a kind of a hay dry ration, right. which you feed to an older calf. From the time a calf gets to three or 500 pounds, like how long is that usually taking? I'd say you're going to ideally wean the calves around six to eight months. Okay. So they're six to eight months old. And then you mentioned if it's a smaller operation, they might not wean them at all and send them directly to the stalker. Yeah. But if it is a big operation, they'll wean them on their dime. So maybe my first question is, are, do they sell for less if they haven't been weaned? Like it's, it's a better buy if they've already been weaned? For sure. Okay. So like... Um, this is kind of my family's business where they buy, they go to sell barns in East Texas and Oklahoma and Southern Oklahoma, where they, they buy these cattle one at a time in an auction. These cattle, are, most of them are not weaned. Yep. And they're going to sell for less per pound than a wean animal. And how much money is somebody trying to make off of each calf during the cow-calf operation? It depends on the operation, but you're, you're factoring in that your, your cow is going to cost five to 600 a year okay. to maintain the cow. Okay. Which is the mom. The mom. And so let's say you sell your calf for a thousand bucks, maybe, mm-hmm. and 800 to a thousand bucks. So you're, it's cost five to 600 to run it. You're going to try to make a couple hundred ahead on your calves. Okay. And then obviously if you're at like a 10,000 cow calf operation, are you making more margin or less margin? You're, you're probably the, the same margin. Okay. You're just going to make, you just have a bigger volume, right? So then the that cow-calf operation goes to an auction where the stalker, the, the folks that run stalker yards are going to purchase those calves? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So how do you transfer 10,000 calves from one piece of land to the stock yard? Is the stalker yard usually close to where the cow-calf operation is? Or is this where like cattle drives happen and shit like that? So if, you, if you're talking about somebody that probably runs 10,000 cows, they're going to have multiple different weights, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to have some 400 pounders to some probably some 600 pounders. Yep. And, and they're going to sell those at four, five, six, or four, four, fifty, five, fifty, six. Okay. And so they might have like three to four loads of each or, and those are going to be sold separately. Like, you know, you may have a guy that wants to buy the three to 500 pounders and a guy that's going to buy the kind of 550 to 600 pounders. Okay. And the freight is a huge thing in our business. Yep. So, you know, cattle trucks come to your place, you sort, you gather, you sort, and you load. And then those cattle trucks disperse to, you know, either to the stocker operator or some of them may go straight to a feed yard if they're a, a grow yard, if they're a bigger animal. How many calves fit in a truckload? So it depends on weight. Yeah. So there's 50,000 pounds is legal limit, okay. um, a 48 to 50, okay. depending on where you are. And you just divide that by how many, yep. how much they weigh. Yeah. So, you know, 50, yep. 500 pounders, you can put a hundred, hundred head on. Okay. So then they go to the stalker yard. 
and mm-hmm. let's describe that again, what a stocker yard does and what their main goal is in, in, in owning those cows. So calves. a stocker operators, like they're going to buy cattle. You know, we, we're in the market every day, mm-hmm. so we're constantly buying and selling. Some guys that run, that have wheat pasture and let's just say wheat country, the guys that I would gather from in college, those guys buy stockers once a year. Okay. Uh, they plant wheat once a year. And they're going to run one set of cattle a year. Okay. And so they're kind of going to buy them no matter what. Right. And they're going to turn them out. They're going to buy them in October to Why November. Why October? Because they, they want to turn them out after Thanksgiving. Why? So the wheat will be ready to go. Ah. They planted it. The wheat's starting to grow. And kind of the goal, everybody's goal is to turn out Thanksgiving Day. Turn okay. out cattle on Thanksgiving Day. But I mean, that everything has to go perfect to do that. You've got you've to get the wheat in at the right time. You've got to have the right amount of rainfall. The weather's got to be perfect, and that's kind of an ideal situation. So a stalker's holding the calf from like October to the following November. No, they'll take them from October. Okay. And they're um, if they're harvesting their wheat, mm-hmm. they've got to be off by um, March to April. So they're going to pull them off because they've probably insured their wheat, and you can't have cattle on it if you have it insured. Um, some of the stalker operators are going to go on a graze out program. Okay. So they'll they'll keep the cattle if they buy them light from October to May. Okay kind of May 1st, and, and then those cattle are going to be gone. And so all they're doing in the stalker phase is just eating wheat or some type or of- Or supplement, supplemented feed. And the goal is to get them from how big to how big? Uh, some guys buy them at 400 pounds, some guys buy them at 600 pounds. Okay. Um, and when they a, leave, how big are they? They leave, they're going to be, it depends on in that part of the world in Western Oklahoma, those cattle are going to be seven to 800, and some of them could weigh, you know, on a good year, they might weigh a thousand. And then they're going to the feed yards. Mm-hmm. When you're at each phase, are you buying based on a price per pound? Yes. Okay. So if you're buying a 400 pounder, it's 400 bucks. If you're buying a 600 pounder, it's 600 bucks. Well, the heavier they are. simple math. But... Yeah. The heavier they are, the less per pound they are. Okay. So like if you're, if you're looking at markets um, to in today's time, right? Yeah. Um, you look at the what we call the feeder cattle market, which is a futures market that all these guys base everything they do off of. Yeah. Cash market, there's a cash market in futures trade. Normally the future sets the cash market. Sometimes it doesn't. But let's say a you look at kind of the feeder cattle side of it. Mm-hmm. The feeder cattle size of it you in October, right now feeder cattle are at 138.32 a pound. So a dollar thirty $138.32 per hundred pounds, or we view it in per pound basis. So they're bringing a dollar thirty eight thirty two a pound. Okay. And how much money in the stalker portion of the ownership are they trying to make during their hold period? So for them to make maybe $100 would be ahead would be great. They're going to try to make 200 bucks ahead. Okay. Those That's guys would like goal. to. There's no outsized profits in our business. So these guys, they buy cattle. These wheat guys buy them every day yeah. or every year, no matter what. They're going yeah. to buy wheat cattle no matter what the cash price is that day. Yep. And so as far as like, you know, if you, you were to buy something in real estate, you're like, all right, I'm going to buy it. I hope to sell it for this. Yep. But you pretty much know what your profit's going to be going into it right. within a few percent. Right. Them, I mean, they're they're buying it, hoping to sell with a profit. They know what the market looks like when the cattle are going to be selling. Right. So they can look at the futures market just like any other business. But the chances of that market staying, there's a lot of factors to get there, right? Yep. There's weather. Does the wheat stay good? Is there... Are they going to gain the weight that you think that you projected them to gain? Price going to stay steady or is it going to take a drop or would it, would it rally quickly? And I mean, those guys could lose money. They could 
make a couple hundred bucks ahead, lose a hundred bucks ahead. Once we get through each phase, we'll chat about hedging and how to minimize risk. And I th- we had talked, I think last week at dinner is some people don't hedge at all. Some people do and try and make a bunch and we'll get into yeah. that. But so let's just say at the end of the stalker period, they're what between 800 and a thousand pounds. At the end of the stalker period, they can be anywhere from, I'd say a good number would be seven to 900 pounds. Okay. And now they're going to the feeder yard. They're going to the feed yard. The feed yard. Yeah. What's going on at the feed yard? So the feed yard is basically the finishing facility for cattle. Okay. I mean, they're, they're set up in large pens. They're fed once or twice a day. <laughs> um, it, your goal there is to gain the maximum amount of weight you can as cheap as you can. Okay. Right? When you send an animal to feed yard, you're going to get a break even, right? You're, you're sending them in. They weigh 700 pounds. They're going to say, all right, they're going in here and... August, they're going to come out in March. Okay. So you're going off the April board, your break even, they're going to factor in cost of financing, cost of feed, death loss. And they're going to say, all right, at the end of all of this, your break even is $1.15 yep. per pound. Yep. And so, you know, you can either, if the board's at $1.18, you can lock in that profit. And we can talk about that later. Yeah. But, um, that's kind of the feed yard phase. And how long are they staying on the feed yard? So they can be there from, I'd say a good number is 160 days. And they're eating what? They're eating, um, by the time everything's said and done, they're going to be eating 85, 80 to 90% corn ration. And where does all this corn come from? That seems like there's a lot of corn to be feeding. It, it is. Uh, it depends on where you are, right? Yeah. Um, so... It comes from, you know, the Corn Belt or the Midwest. Right. So I would say the states that are probably the largest corn states or the heartland of America is going to be, you know, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois. Yep. But there's plenty of corn in Texas out in the kind of the Lubbock area. Those guys harvest some corn. The cheapest corn, because there's more of it, is going to be in the Nebraska area. So the yep. further north you feed, the cheaper your cost of gain is going to be. Yep. So when they're done being fed at the feeder yard, feed yard. Mm-hmm. That's when they're heading to the slaughterhouse yeah. to basically meet their maker. There's four major packing plants. Um, the yards that you feed at have a relationship with, you know, they either have a set deal with on the grid with Tyson or they're, they're going to sell them, you know, by the head to kind of the highest bidder that comes in there every week. Why, why don't people do all three phases? Like, why do you just have to keep moving down the road? Is it just such a niche specialty in each phase that you just got to get good at one thing or do people well, do it all? So for us, it's, you know, it's a capital intensive business, right? Yeah. And low, a lot of capital, low margins yeah. and, um, or small margins. We got a lot of feedback on yeah. the cattle business. It's not a yes. super profitable business. No, it's, it's not a... Um, and the guys that have done it right, like their overheads really, they keep their overhead low. On the good years, they make great money. They've invested all back into their facility, their place. Yep. Um, and on the bad years, they just try to hang on. So just if you take my family, for example, we have no cows. Yep. And the reason we don't is cows take a lot of land, a lot of surface okay. to cover. We can put more stock or cattle per land on our ranch than we can a cow. Cows are expensive to run, we think. And we could buy more with less dollars. Yep and put more on our place. And then we retain through the feeding process. But a lot of guys don't retain through the feeding process. The feeding is, again, a tough business that's controlled by four major buyers. And if you can cash out profit early on, yep. that's why we'll sell a portion of ours. If you can cash out, market's great, take some profit now, and then take the risk on the rest of them. 
Okay. So what are the biggest risks in the industry? Like you mentioned death loss, like I guess droughts where maybe you're not getting enough corn or feed. Like what are all the things that can go wrong during this whole process? Yeah, so so death loss, um, when you're buying cattle, like we buy high risk calves. So we buy pretty much no wean calves. Why do you buy high risk? More margin? Cheaper, cheaper price, got right? Um, so cheaper input cost. We got guys that, a couple of guys that all they do every day is just basically take care of cattle, okay. check cattle and, and doctor administer medicine to the sick ones. So the biggest risk in the business is a lot of things. I mean, it's the, the health, the death loss, the drought. Um, is there, are we going to get enough rain? What are the cost of gains going to be? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I would say death loss and cost of gains are going to be two of your probably biggest risk. Okay. And then obviously a market that you can't control. Yeah. Right. I mean, and we'll talk about this later, but speculators also have a huge presence in our markets and they trade in and out of our markets and control and dictate the price of cattle where supply and demand doesn't always dictate the business. I was going to ask, what are the biggest upsides in the business? Like how do ranchers do really well? The futures markets just go up and pricing goes, you know, out of whack and they lock that in or like what, why would a great year happen for some people versus a bad year? Yes. Yeah, so, um, because is it fair to say that like we're pretty much eating a consistent amount of beef each year? Well, that's and that's depends on how our like the trade yeah. like is. Are we are we exporting beef? What are our export numbers? Are we importing a lot or like this year? So, um, you know, with with COVID, there's no uh, the high end cuts aren't selling per se because people don't want to spend that money. They're not spending that money. They're not going to the extra, you know, they go to the nice steakhouse three times a year. They're probably going to go once or conventions have shut down. All these, these high end places are, are their revenues down. They're selling less. They were closed for a long time. And the, the lower cuts are what people are eating. And we talked about this the other night at dinner that some reason, all the cattle ranchers were losing a lot of money. But all the was it all the producers or all packing the, the packing houses were crushing it. Yeah, I mean you've got how does that happen? You've got four buyers um, that control the market, and we're selling beef. You know, there's there's a preserve like a presumed shortage of beef. I don't know if you realize that the first of Corona, you'd go in the grocery store and the the meat counters would be empty, right? There's yeah. there's but that was an issue with coronavirus shutting down packing houses. It was the there was no lack of supply. It was just the chain was. There was a, a bottleneck in the chain. They couldn't kill enough cattle. Packers could set the market, um, decide who they were going to get them from. There were some yards that were holding cattle for way longer than they should have. Yeah. And so that eats up on your, also you're your feeding these cattle longer. Right. So your cost of gain is going up while you're doing that. So people started trying to slow the slow the consumption rate down right. and limit. You, you have to maintain, but when cattle are ready to go, it's... Like any other business, let's say for real estate or oil and gas, when you when the market's hot, you can sell your mineral rights, you can sell that barrel of oil, or you can sell that building right then. Yeah, cattle are, are go through all these phases, so you can't sell it at that moment. Right, you've got to wait till it's time to get to that phase, and when it's time to be to leave the feed yard to go to the packing house, you can't really hold it. And if right. you do, it's it's going to one cost you a lot of money to do so. It's going to cause a huge issue in the the chain of. So what happens when you have cows that are ready to leave the feed yard, but you have packers that aren't willing to take them? Like you just put them to put them to bed? No, and I mean you they 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 have to basically back off 
the feeding. I mean, they held them. So rather than feeding them, you know, whatever it is, 10 pounds a day, they just start feeding them eight pounds a day to try and delay whatever that day. Lower that's it down. Be. Yeah. But for the like for the cows that were ready to go right when Corona happened, did and they had already been fed, you know, assuming that they were going to be shipped off in a couple of weeks and then this happens, do they continue to live? Do Yeah, they held them for okay. as long as they could. They just, I mean, and there's a, a lot of articles on that. I mean, it was a, a huge problem in, yeah. in the industry. I mean, there's just this massive bottleneck that, that caused, I mean, kind of market and what happened during COVID was really odd. At one point, the cash trade, which doesn't happen very often, if very rarely, that was trading ten to fifteen dollars over right. on fat cattle than the futures market. So, yeah. which never happens. There's always kind of like, you know, they're going to trade it the same as the futures market, or a couple dollars back, or a dollar back. But trading ten to fifteen dollars above cash trade was trading ten to fifteen dollars above, which is, is unheard of and crazy. Yeah. So is there like a, you know how like in some animals, like the bigger they get, the tougher their meat gets or something like, can a cow get too big to where it's just not even good to eat the meat anymore? So a cow, there's, there's total different phases, right? Yeah. So you're going to kill a feeder animal pre that phase, right? You, right. you, you maintain your cattle, you castrate your bull calves when they're young. And um, when you do that, it's, you know, a bull has tougher meat than a, feeder steer yeah. and so and then there's a total, total separate side of the packing business on old cows and old bulls okay so they you know they, they call it packer cow the packer cow buyers so okay. th these guys buy those cows go straight to the packing house yep and those are like hamburger meat i mean that's kind of the lower cuts of meat yep. that's what those cattle are for and while we're on the topic i didn't have this as a question but do you know how veal is made like it's always been told to me that they're left in a dark room their whole life and they never see sunlight and they're fed like baby milk their whole life until they're just perfect enough to create that tender meat. Is so that a myth? They're, they're in a crate. Okay. So the, these cattle are in a crate and people do that for, for different stages, not just veal. Like the hosting business, there was a, which is obviously a, a tough business in its own right. But, you know, years ago, guys started building these kind of state-of-the-art facilities of these mm -hmm. crates, these day-old calves basically and they put these little calves in these crates and there would be hundreds of them i mean thousands of them this uh, a family friend of ours had a feed yard in kansas and they had a forty thousand head calf yard so they would have these little mini crates with these baby calves in them then they were on tracks and they you know they'd put bottles in there yeah every and it was just like there's guys just throwing bottles on as they went by and they fed those calves in there until they got to a certain weight and the same thing with them yeah, yeah. and then you just kill them young. Yeah, the meat's young and tender, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you said that you worked at Superior, which was the world's largest kind of online, was it online auction or online market? Yeah. So it's a, it was, let's say it started in the late mid eighties Yeah. Uh, by kind of two guys that were definitely pioneers in the business in their own right. Uh, Buddy Jeffers was out of Amarillo, Texas, owned a livestock auction. Jim Odell was out of Brush, Colorado. Okay. And he owned an auction company as well. And these guys had this idea to bring cattle to video. So you could buy cattle from the comfort of your home or from the comfort of your office. Yep. And I mean, this is unheard of in their time. Yeah. And they they start promoting this. They had the first auction, I believe, at Billy Bob's. Okay. Is where they had their first auction. They're headquartered in Fort Worth. They just built an office. Um, they were in the stockyards and they just moved um, two weeks ago west of town. Okay. So they're, um, they built an office out at Hudson Oaks. Yep. I think. And... Um, 
What this company does is they have 350 reps nationwide, nationwide that go out to the rancher and they put together, they build the relationships with these farmers and ranchers and they put together a video of these cattle and a contract. So the contract basically says, all right, we're going to sell your cattle and they're going to weigh 500 pounds and they're going to deliver May 1 to 15, next May. Mm-hmm. And so these guys, they're like, all right, we want to take advantage of the prices today for next May. It's a, it's a separate way of basically hedging, right? Because yep. it's a forward contracting sale. Yep. And so they take these cattle and Superior may have, um, their biggest sales are going to be in the summertime. They do one in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and uh, they've moved it around in Colorado, but they may sell, you know, 200,000 head yep. in a week's time. And they're all from different parts of the U.S., all these, and when they pull it up on the screen, you can see that pin of cattle, you'll have that contract, yep. exactly what those cattle weigh, when they're going to deliver a description of them. You can also see them on video, and then there'll be a live auction. You yep. can go to the auction in person. You can call in and bid over the, through watch it through TV and bid over the phone, or you can do a click to bid, which, which is what they do online. It, let's just talk about hedging for a little bit. Does everybody that's big in the business hedge or is just kind of a case by case or? It's definitely case by case. This, my granddad's older, right? Yeah. And he still runs our operation. He's not a hedger. I mean, those that Why? generation, they just have never really been hedgers. Um, and mainly because it's um, probably for him. I mean, technology, he's, you know, not very apt to technology. And yeah. so he's uh, he just likes, you know, turns them out. You know, the saying is you use your grass as your hedge, right? I've yeah. got all this grass and I'm going to turn cattle out on it and I'm either going to make or lose, but I'm going to cost of gain is going to be cheap. And we, and we, we're in the market every day. Yep. And so he's at a livestock auction and he can see like, all right, the 400 pounders are, are, are crazy high today. This last week they've been somebody, a lot of people are in on them. I'm going to buy 500 pounders. There's a hole in the market here. I'm going to buy 300 pounders. And so he can just kind of figure out the holes in the market and, and he will um, buy every single day in the market. And he's just like, I've always got cattle for sale. Uh, we're always buying. Yep. And there's never, I mean, he's just not a hedger, right? And you said you bought riskier cattle. So if you buy a, a, a calf that hasn't been weaned off, are they just more susceptible to like dying because they're so shocked by the new feeding process? Or well, like, why are they higher risk? Because they haven't been weaned. So we call them high risk calves, right? Yeah. And you buy them and I mean, pneumonia is a huge cause of death. Just they're, they're traveling somewhere new. They've been around a bunch of other cattle that they weren't around. Yeah. Um, you know, the disease is spreading. You get them home, you process them, you put them through some stress. So everything, everything we get, we process internally. So as soon as those calves at our place, we sort them. And then we run them through the chute, um, castrate the bulls, minister shots, so all the kind of the basic meds, uh, ear tag them and brand them, which yep. branding is basically ownership, yep. right? And ear tag them with our, our name and phone number in case they get out, right? Got it. Okay. So going back to head, your grandfather doesn't do it because he's maybe not, you know, he's old school. Like who are the people that are hedging? These like private equity backed ranchers or- so. And we'll get into ownership in a second, all the different ownership structures, but like, why would somebody hedge versus somebody else? So there's plenty of people that hedge and what you don't want to do as a hedger, right? Mm -hmm. Is hedge one year Mm -hmm. and not hedge the next because you're, you can get on the wrong side Mm -hmm. of the, of the trade. So let's say you hedge this year, right? And the margins are tight. You barely make any money. All the other guys lost, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. All the other guys made market went crazy sky high. Yep. You made very little money. 
just what you hedged at small profit. So let's say you made 40 or $50. These other guys made two to 250. And that's coming out of the feeder yard. No, this is just like at any phase Got in it. the business, right? Got so it. the stalker operators, they made, you hedged your stalker cattle, market went up. Yep. You lost money on your hedge, made money on your cattle. So you're kind of even, you're, you're breaking, you're going to make 35 to 40 bucks, whatever yep. you hedged. These other guys made 200 to 250 ahead. So this next year rolls around. Mm -hmm. You decide not to hedge. The market goes down. So you you barely made any money mm. last year. Market now you're losing 150 bucks ahead. These other guys that made 250 last year, maybe they lose 150 this year, but on an average, yeah. right? They made 100 bucks ahead, right? Over the course of the two years. All right. So let's just talk about like ownership. I mean, when when preparing for this uh, episode, a lot of people just said like the cattle business isn't the greatest business in the world. It's like a fruit of love and a passion and everything else. But then there's people that are like, no, you can do really well in it. So maybe just starting, how's the majority of the industry made up? Are they these family businesses that have been around for three or four generations or their startups, not like a Silicon Valley startup, but just two guys that decide to buy some cattle and get started. Like how is the industry broken out from an ownership perspective? Well, I mean, let's just say, for example, that the town that I grew up in is a small town of 1,200 people, right? Mm -hmm. So I graduated with 32 kids. And there was probably me and another kid that our, our family ran a kind of a larger cattle operation. Okay. But there was probably like 10 of the other kids that their mom and dads had, you know, 40 to 60 cows, right? Yeah. And as time goes on, like none of those kids that I, I went to school with mm -hmm. are going to have 40 to 60 head. Right. And so those are going to, those are going to be dispersed and the land will probably be sold. And so operations are, are getting, you know, bigger and bigger as we go. There's, there's less and less smaller producers yep. and there's less and less young people going into the business, but there are a few that are still going into it. Right. And then there's a lot of the bigger operators. There's definitely some private equity money in the cattle feeding side, okay. right in the, in the feed yard side, um, which I can tell a story about a guy that- Let's tell it. A, a friend of mine, he, um, his name's Jordan Levy, Jewish guy from Chicago, gets into the cattle business, um, kind of raised, he, he went to work for Aubrey McClendon, did some stuff for him. Anyway, that fund closed and he raised the first fund to feed cattle, the first that I know of, and definitely not very well liked in the business at the beginning. Yeah. Um, Jordan, Why? It just, uh, uh, it's a, any, like any business, a not newcomer, a cowboy, a real cowboy. very intelligent guy, focused on numbers only from, from Chicago, not yeah. from, not from West Texas or Southern Oklahoma. Right. Yeah. And, um, Jordan rolls in and like makes it still work. I mean, he starts feeding cattle. He, he went at it a, a different way. He owned no infrastructure, so no feed yard. And he fed it probably 16 to 18 different locations. And he would feed anywhere from 50 to 60,000 head. How was he just leasing those locations? No, he would just, just like any custom feeder, like my granddad or like, you know, if I fed some cattle on, I put them on feed at a feed yard. Got it. Basically they call it a custom feeding. So Got it. these massive feed yards take in customer cattle as well. Okay. Cause they don't take the risk on the, those cattle. They Got make it. money selling you the feed and they're taking risk on the cattle they own, Got but it. not the ones you own. So they might be feeding 70% and 30% are third party cattle that's just using the yeah. feed yard. Got and it. so these these feed yards love a guy like Jordan. He's feeding big numbers and um, he's feeding them at you know 16 different locations and he's hedging everything. I'm pretty sure he hedges every, every one he buys and he sends out a bid sheet to his, his buyers every Sunday night. And if they don't fit that bid sheet, he doesn't buy them. And 
he hedges either a small profit or hedges a break even, right? In hopes mm-hmm. that they outperform what he's projected. And that's how he makes more money. So if they out, if he hedges a small break, just a break even. Mm-hmm. So he just wants his equity money back. He's going to hope they outperform. And if they do and they make 40 bucks ahead, it's great. It's yeah. huge for him because he's running on a massive scale. So he's successful because he's like a finance guru. And he worked. I mean, guy. it's a passion business, right? He, yeah. he like developed this passion for the cattle business. He works his ass off. He is, and he's in the business. Uh, Jordan's on, you know, every, he's been on every board you can be on. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association boards, the Texas Cattle Feeders Association. He's very involved in the business and wants to do things for the betterment of the business. And a few years ago, he put together um, one of the same groups that invest with him is a company called Pinnacle Asset Management. And his company's, which is a hedge fund out of New York, and his company's called Arcadia Asset Management. Okay, They put together the group to buy the largest cattle feeding operation in the world. So it's uh, it was called JBS Five Rivers. Five Rivers Cattle Feeding is what it is now called. It lost the JBS part. And Jordan's the managing partner, and they feed 980,000 head at one time. Where? Uh, all over. Probably like 10 locations, okay. Colorado, Kansas, Texas, Idaho, I believe. Does the but, climate and the location where the feed yards are change the outcome of what the cow's going to look like when it's for sure um, like um you're probably not going to send a lot of cattle from southern oklahoma and texas to nebraska to feed yeah you know or south dakota like you're going to send those cattle to texas panhandle and kansas yep if that that's more just because of proximity but it's not like if you're in colorado where it's cold half the year the cows are going to like physically be different when it's time to get they the cattle there it's really hard to take a northern animal Mm mm-hmm to a lot of these guys, like, I mean, northern animals are better genetics, right? Mm-hmm. They always have been. And as we're bettering our genetics as a as a country, northern genetics are, have had the best, gen, the north has had the best genetics. Mm-hmm. And those guys would occasionally, these, these guys in Oklahoma and Texas, they like to run fancy, like, number one animals, right? right. So they're going to buy these cattle out of the north. And they bring them down here and put them on wheat. And at times it works, but at times it's too hot here. Yeah. And, you know, these cattle come down with, you know, hair and they're they're red, they're great for up there, but they don't do as well down here just because of the climate, right? Yeah. And, and the same goes for our our cattle. I mean, you know, they're thinner hided and yep. they, they're used to our, our weather and they don't acclimate as well. For sure. So the, the 40 to 60 cow uh, folks... Are they usually doing that for property taxes or like, why are they having 40 to 60? Is it, is it kind of just a hobby? Well, yeah, a lot of them probably had, you know, they've all, their families always had some kind of yeah. cattle, right? And they get an ag exemption on their place, mm-hmm. but that most of them all have a, a another income, right? Right. They're either a banker and they've got 50 or 60 head on the side or yeah. they they have some other kind of income, a yeah. teacher. Or, like I could, you could see you me could, having 40 to 60 head one day. Yeah. But I mean, you you like know, it's just my dumb real estate friend and he just bought 40 to 60 cows. And, yeah, but, you know, on Saturday you want to be playing golf. You're probably not going to want to go out and hay and feed them. And if you have 40 to 60, you can't you really should, outsource should, the work. Like, yeah, you, there's yeah, no you, margin. There's to no like margin hire to hire somebody. Guy. You've got to feed them and hay them yourself, right? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, okay, so the there's the small guys. We talked about the big kind of hedge fund private equity world that bought the largest feed yard, but is the majority of the industry made up of these kind of legacy generational families that continue to kind of get bigger and bigger because there's not as many new incumbents like getting into the cattle business. They're all going into like social media and 
So the biggest barrier to entering the cattle business is land, right? I mean, land has increasingly gotten more expensive and people can't afford. So if you were today to say, I'm going to, I'm going to become a rancher and that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to buy, a, you know, 5,000 acres. I'm going to borrow the money for it. I'm going to borrow the money for the cattle and I'm going to have an operating line of credit to feed them. And I mean, you just can't make, make it, it work. work. There's just no way. So a lot of these guys inherit these places and, and take on the business and maintain it. They bought the land at, I mean, f- let's just say like our land cost. I mean, it was, you know, you probably average the ranch average 400, 450 bucks an acre. Yeah. And today it's worth, you know, yeah. a couple thousand bucks an acre. Yep. Uh, so basically the cattle business is a covered land play for real estate. I mean, it, yeah, your land is your asset. Yeah. I mean, a lot of cattle people are not, they don't have a lot of cash on hand. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're always putting that cash back into their place, whether it's fences or barns or buying equipment. So all these, you know, cattle prices haven't changed a whole lot and the profits per head haven't changed a whole lot over the years but you know a tractor costs three hundred thousand dollars now and i mean they finance all of this they're heavy debt on their equipment so they have to have their ranch you know paid for or or some outside income right i just wanted to maybe go for like a couple minutes on like your grandfather it's a seven day a week business i imagine this guy that's got like rough hands and been in the field for general like decades working seven days a week as a cattle rancher like what's his day-to-day like uh he's um a very interesting guy you would you would think he's probably a crazy person right yeah i mean he's uh he, he looks hard i mean his face is hard uh his hands i mean he's just a worker so he runs our business monday through friday normally he, he makes a livestock auction so every morning he's five fifteen at the office going over everything growing up cattle auctions lasted longer and he obviously was trying to, you know, build a, a company. So there were a lot of mornings that he and my dad, you know, they would be getting home as the sun's coming up from the cell the night before, go to our office, sort the cattle they bought that day, turn around and go again, sleep a couple hours maybe. Yeah. And as he's gotten older, the sales have slowed down, but he's still a five day a week auction guy. Yeah. He goes to the auction, he goes to the office every morning, kind of lines everybody out, make sure our hard hands are kind of get done what he needs to do for his ranching operation and our order buying operation. He makes a sale, comes back home that night, gets home after dark, does that kind of Monday through Friday, mm-hmm. Saturday, he stays at home. So he's there all day and we have everybody there on Saturdays as well. And Sundays, he lets most of the hired hens, all of them take off. So on Sundays, he goes to the office 515, church, lunch, and then he feeds cattle all afternoon because somebody's got to to feed the cattle. So, you know, all these friends of ours in Fort Worth, they go to their ranch on the weekends and they hunt and, you know, drink and hang out. Like when I go home, it's not, this is not a lot of fun. Like yeah. it's, uh, I mean, it's fun to go back and do what I used to do. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's fun to spend time with your family, but it's a, it's definitely a work. Like on Sundays, you're going to ride around and open gates for him yep. so he can, he can feed or you're going to take a truck and we'll split up and knock it out that way he can at least enjoy some of the sunday afternoon and maybe watch a football game are you on horseback are you in a truck the the, uh, you're in a feed truck okay so we mix our own feeds so we have a couple of mixer trucks and then a couple of probably smaller like mixed feed trucks that they don't mix but they're easier to get in and out of the pastures Uh, but these mixer trucks are what feed you know they'll feed um multiple tons at one time yep and um the it's a crazy are you putting it in like troughs or you're just like no, we're putting it in troughs because it's yeah. a it's a mix of you know corn, 
DDG, dry distillers, grain. We're going to put some, we're going to grind hay up, put some hay in there, put some cottonseed holes, burrs. Uh, it's a, a mix of feed that he basically mixes himself and we out like use some feed guys to, they come in and kind of tell us what they see working for stocker cattle operations and yeah. we'll mix our feed according to that. How many cattle are there per acre? That definitely depends on like where you are, right? Yeah. And what you're running. Right. So let's say um, if you're going to run cattle and cows in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. you're you're going to run one per four to five acres, right? Really? If you're going to run cows in West Texas, like Pecos County? Yeah. I mean, and I'm not very familiar with, with uh, that exact part of the world, but yeah. you may run like four to five cows per section. So per 640 acres, you may run four cows to five cows. What? Why Why would you run one on five acres in Oklahoma and one, because there's a lack of grass? Lack of grass, lack of nutrients, you know, much better. There's there's way better grass in Oklahoma than there is in West Texas. How many cattle? Waters, are... more water each year. They get more rainfall. Four to five cows per 640 acres. Yeah, I mean, crazy. it's the, and that's, um, would definitely need to fact check that, but yeah, yeah, that's yeah. on average, I would say. So how many cows cattle are in america in america there's roughly like i would say 90 to 100 million cattle somewhere around on average 95 million so there's probably if we just said there's one cow for every 10 acres that's basically like 10 million acres in america are dedicated for cattle yeah that's a lot and i mean if you ever fly like people are are piled in these little cities right Or, or in these big cities and there's all this open yeah. acreage that, I mean, it's kind of cool to see if you're yeah. ever looking, if you ever look down when you're flying. Well, I'm going to come up to the family farm and family ranch in Oklahoma, uh, do a lot. We'll do another live podcast for the family. Yeah, it'll be good. Get your grandfather yeah. on. What's your grandfather's name? Ronnie. Ronnie, yeah. if you're listening to this, I'm coming to interview you next, buddy. All right. Who's the largest cattle rancher in the country? You would have probably never guessed this, uh, and I, I didn't until I learned the Mormon church, okay. largest ranching operation. I think they, they have maybe 40,000 cows, somewhere around that. Really? Uh, Deseret Ranches is in Florida is where the, the biggest Mormon, they, the Mormons have a ranch in Texas. I mean, they've got, and they're, they're fully integrated. Like, yeah. I mean, I think they have their own genetics. They don't want, when they buy a place, they want none of yep. the person's genetics. They, they bring in all their own genetics. So genetics is the next topic. It's a good segue in. I guess the, just the first question, and then we'll get into like Kobe versus Wagyu versus, you know, really nice cuts versus bad, but have genetics in, in general, are they, have they gotten, like if your grandfather was sitting here, would he say that cows today are much better than they were 50 years ago? Like have genetics improved or have cows kind of stayed the same? I mean, just in my like lifetime, yep. it's crazy to see that, the, so we run what I would call a commodity animal, right? Yep. All different American breeds that we buy, we're, we're not buying any specific breed. We're buying a commodity animal to, to better that animal for feed. Right. And the genetics just on what we run, right. I mean, that are available or have increased. And a lot of that's due to these small farms. You know, they're, they're not there anymore. And these people are focusing more on, they buy a better bull. They're buying better cows. They're, they're retaining heifers that they breed. And they're keeping those heifers because they, they like the, those genetics better and they breed them. And so they increase, you know, the gen, it's crazy how far genetics can come. Even 
probably in the last 10 years. So if we're saying like genetics have gotten better, what about the cow is better? Like the meat tastes better. They're getting uh, bigger, quicker. Like what, what, why, what it is the answer to better genetics? Not the quality of taste. It's the quality of like how much they gain each day. So yeah. you, the average gain per day, as far as like, if you look at, you know, what made genetics and what drives better genetics, it's when you go to an auction or you see what a plain animal brings versus what a, a good one brings. Mm -hmm. And and the the it's so crazy as a calf, the difference in what a bad one versus a good one will bring. Mm -hmm. Now when they get to weigh like eight hundred pounds, like you can you can basically you buy an upgrader. So you buy kind of a, a plainer young calf and when he gets to eight hundred pounds he looks better and you can you know, call him a number one or a one eighty percent ones, twenty percent one and a half. So is there right? a rating system? A little bit, yeah. So when when we buy cattle, feeder cattle, yeah, you're gonna look to see if they're kind of number ones, or number twos, right? So you're gonna a lot a lot of cattle that we would buy from feeder cattle guys that I would buy mostly in Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. When you call the feed yard to sell them, so a guy calls me and he says, "Hey, I'm gonna have ten loads of 800 pound cattle for sale, and they're coming off um, Flint Hills grass in Kansas in August, right?" And he said. Here's what I, I want to, you know, let's just say any number. I want a dollar fifty for them. Okay. And so how we trade those cattle, I go look at them, and if I could look at them, he'd send pictures or videos. Uh, mainly pictures are better. And you send those pictures to the feed yard, and as these feed yards have become, you know, guys like us have gotten involved in them. These guys are, as you know, they like technology as well, and so the the buyer instead of having to talk to a bunch of people, you know, let's just say one for example. Cactus feeders. Um, when I was in the business, uh, Brent Cavness was the guy. At cactus feeders, very serious about his job, and um, did a great job for Cactus. But he wanted you to text him headcount, delivery date, the shrink and the slide, which we can get into that later, and then what what they were. Okay. So, so a lot of times you would just say, "Hey, Brent, these are eighty percent number ones, twenty percent one and a halves. Here's a here's a couple of pictures of them." And I'd give him all the details on them, mm -hmm. and I, I'd give him an asking price, and he'd you know bid something back or say I'll take them or I'll give you if you know you ask one fifty I'll give you one forty five and you counter at forty eight and he says we're a pass right or so you do that until you get the trade done, so we would do that for guys on a commission basis, mm -hmm. and so then I would you would make a spread a small commission in between the the seller and the feed yard, and are you literally just transporting? The cattle from that place to his yard. Yeah, they were still... they were only ours while they were on the truck from his place to Brent's to the to cactus or to the, any feed yard. So it's probably a stupid question because there's wholesalers in every industry and there's distributors. But like, why wouldn't he just call that person direct and make the deal direct? Why go through you? Well, so let's say um, so he could call Brent, right? He doesn't know Brent. Or he could call JBS Cactus, any of these major feed yards, Bob Foot, another family that. We can talk about in the cattle business that is, is a crazy story, but so I have relationships with you know ten different yards that buy cattle or five different yards that I sell to on a day to day basis. I know kind of which one's buying and which one's paying up for that animal. So we could probably it eases the process for them. He sells them to me, and it eases the process for for the feed yards as far as like they don't have to buy from you know twenty five individual people a day. Right. They can buy from you know five buyers a day that are bringing them. You know, 25 different guys, cattle at each time. Got right? it. So 
real quick touching back on the uh buying you, you buy like what you might call it two which is a calf that hasn't been weaned off you're buying the riskier ones mm -hmm. like your value add is we know how to take riskier calves and make them into ones basically yeah, yeah. it's like flipping a house or something yeah it's yes you the same deal some, yeah got it let's just talk real quick about what you just mentioned where you were saying you know it's a one or two this is what they look like this is how many there are uh this is their shrink and slide what's a shrink and slide so a shrink is um every time you buy something right you load it on a truck the animal's going to shrink weight so you weigh these cattle either on the truck or on the ground so you either have a set of scales on the ground that you weigh them on at the ranch uh-huh which a lot of these bigger ranches do. Yeah. Or you have a lot of these smaller guys that may just have five loads of cattle a year. They're not going to pay to put a set of scales in. So there's a set of truck scales at the co-op. Yeah. And you're going to weigh the truck first empty. Yep. I'll, I'll do the truck one first. So you okay. weigh the truck first empty. You go to the guy's place. You load the, the, the cattle on the truck. You take them back to the weigh the truck again. So you take the, the second weight minus the first weight, right? right? And that's what the cattle weigh and you divide it by the head. Okay. And a slide is like a 10 cent slide per pound. So if I gave you a dollar fifty at 700 pounds, and I said those cattle have a 10 cent slide, those cattle weighed 710. They didn't weigh 700. Ah, so you're already marking them down. So seven, you know, 10 pounds. So you're taking a dollar off of them, right? Because it they're 10 cent slide per pound. Got it. So you're taking a dollar off of them because they're 10 pounds. And why do you weigh? Why do they weigh less once they get on the truck? Because they don't get to eat for well, they, a couple of they hours. They travel and they shrink and they go to the bathroom and yeah. so so you if you weigh them on the truck, you're going to do a two percent shrink on the truck. Yeah. So if the cattle, all the cattle on the truck weighed, let's say they weighed forty eight thousand pounds, right? Yeah. You're going to do it times 0.02, take a two percent shrink off, and that's your new weight. Divide that by the head count, and that's your average pay weight. Got it. So you have a gross weight, a pay weight. Got it. You're paid on after the shrink. If you weigh them on the ground. A lot of those guys shrink them three because you're weighing them quicker. Then they're going to sit on the ground for a minute before you load them on the truck. So they're going to shrink a little bit more. And so you do a 3%. It's just industry standard, 3% on the ground, 2% on the truck. Got it. Finishing up on genetics, let's just talk about like Wagyu or Kobe. Uh, why do those sell for so much more than like your typical steak at Central Market or something? So. You know, for like our family is in the just commodity cattle business, right? The the beef business. Mm -hmm. So I'm not as well versed on the Wagyu okay. side of it, but I can give you like a little details. I mean, Wagyu is a, a novelty, like it's probably some of the best meat, right? Yeah. There is. And um, these cattle are held a lot longer. They're fed a lot longer and feed is a huge cost in the business. So a lot of the reason they're higher, the input cost to get the product is Got a it. lot higher. They're just eating better stuff. Yeah, they're eating better. They're, I mean, and they're eating longer, much longer. So is grass-fed considered like the best-fed cattle? It depends on who you ask. For me, no. What is? Grain-finished cattle are the best. So when you're on a, when you're looking at a menu and it's like, this is the grass-fed steak. Never would I ever ask them like, that. give me the corn-fed cow. Yeah, I don't, and look for healthy reasons. Like these people eat grass-fed, right? They yeah. said you know there's less fat in the grass-fed, and they're right. Don't get me wrong that they taste awful. Yeah. So corn creates fat, fat creates flavor. Cut the fat off, that's fine, but fat is what gives the steak the flavor and you've, you've got to eat a corn-fed steak. 
So there's probably some people listening that are familiar with Midland Meat Company. I'm just picking them out just because they're familiar, but they're known to have just awesome steaks. They do. They have great steaks. Why are their steaks better than other places? So the Scarborough family, big ranching family, oil and gas family from the Midland Amarillo Panhandle area. Yeah. John Scarborough runs the company, I believe, and, and he went to TCU Ranch Management, is really focused on his family business on the cattle side of it, and has done a lot of work to create a a really good product. Uh, they have Hereford cows and they breed them to Wagyu bulls. So it's kind of the best of both worlds, right? They're grain finished, all of them, mm-hmm. I, I believe. And those cattle are, the Wagyu's a ton of fat. You know, beef cattle have less fat. And so you, you, in my opinion, my favorite cut of meat's the strip. They have one of the best strips there is. Now their ribeye may be a little fatty for me just because it's got the Wagyu fat, which a ribeye is already a fatter cut. Right. So the Wagyu bull is basically just a better fed bull. It's a fattier bull, and they and John they feed them longer too. Yeah, to create you know more fat, which creates flavor, and and I mean a wagyu steak's kind of buttery, right? I mean it's just how long does a bull or a a mother cow live? Ten years, five years? Uh, they can live like a cow can live twenty plus years, right? Okay. Um, and they just produce baby, they produce calves once a year for twenty years. Yeah, they produce calves, but I mean they. Their performance consistently kind of declines around 10 years of age, right? Got it. So, you know, you'll have, some people have cows for much longer, but I mean, you start culling out your older cows at a certain point. So a lot of guys, you know, cows are aged by their teeth, right? And wow. they sell these cows as, you know, she's at the cell barn, you might, you know, she's old, but bred. So some people make a living on buying old bred cows at a cheap price, calving them one time, taking that calf, making the profit, then selling the cows a packer cow. Got it. That's a part of the business that we don't do, but a lot of people and make a, money. What's a packer cow? Packer cow is the, a cow that's probably not going to produce any more old and is going straight to the packing house for Got hamburger, for, for low quality meat. This is probably the dumbest question of the entire episode, but uh, cows just have one calf at a time. They don't have like twins or triplets. Occasionally they can have twins or triplets. And is that... Do I mean, all three calves end up being healthy? Sometimes. Sometimes yeah. they don't. Sometimes uh, you have an orphan calf or, or, you know, it takes one of the two. Yeah. Sometimes they both are healthy. Yeah. Um, it just kind of depends. Like having triplets is pretty rare. Yeah. And I mean, if you have more than, a, you know, one triplet a year, it's very rare. Like so if you have a cow-calf operation that's putting out 4,500 calves a year, there's also 4,500 cows as well. So it's yes. about 9,000 animals total. Yeah. So you're feeding, you know, that's the reason cows are a, a big input. They have a lot of input costs because you're, you're feeding that stalker while you have it. Yep. Stalker calf. You're feeding the cow year round. Yep. Right? Yep. Well, you mentioned Hereford. What are the different breeds of cows? We don't may have to get into all of them, but what are the ones that we're eating the most of? Well, let's just, let, I'll talk about like, we're eating the most, probably all of them, right? Okay. But let's talk about like what I think is probably the the best breeder in my opinion. Okay. So, I mean, the Angus breed has historically been known to be great. And there's, you know, black Angus, red Angus, great red Angus have taken this like huge increase over the last 10 years. I mean, the red Angus association really promotes their animals and there's a huge craze for red Angus cattle right now. Um, if you're feeding cattle, um, a, a black Angus and a Charlay is a great like combination, a okay. great breed. Herefords, you know, a black Angus and, and a Hereford, you're going to get a black baldy, black calf with a white face. Those are kind of, you know, 
A lot of people like those. In Texas, especially East Texas, there's this huge craze for um, kind of an F1 cross. So it's a, it's going to be a tiger stripe calf is what you're going to get an F1 tiger stripe. You're going to breed a Hereford to a Bremer. Okay. So, you know, people not in the cattle business will probably say Brahmin. Yeah. But if you're in the cattle business, you call them Bremers, right? I call them Bremers. Bremers. Okay. Yeah. You're in the Yeah. So, <laughs> no. So you're going to breed a Bremer and a Hereford and you're going to get F1 tiger stripe, which an F1 tiger stripe steer, not that valuable. Yep. Just, you're going to go to feed. A heifer is crazy. I mean, people will pay... A, a crazy amounts of money for a good F1 tiger strap heifer. And that's all because the taste of that meat, it's, is it all get like you said, red Angus is really popular. Is that because their meat tastes better? Like what makes, they just it, look cooler? Just what? the, so it's not because of the steak tastes better, right? I mean, the meat's going to roughly all taste, you know, a little bit the same, Yeah. but um, it's the climate of the, where they live. So East Texas, hot, humid, those F1 tiger straps are going to perform much better in that climate. Got it. Than a black Angus is. Got it. Where or a red Angus is. Got it. All right. So we've been talking about steak, hamburgers, all things beef, but there's an incumbent industry coming in about this impossible meat, this kind of fake meat. I guess my first question is, is it putting a dent in the cattle industry or cattle industry people even worried about it? Like, how do you see it from your side? Look, uh, yeah, I mean, is fake meat like making impossible burgers? Are they making kind of a, a push across America? Of course they are. Yeah. But to look at like the f- the fortunate thing is the overall herd is probably declining, right? Because less, less and less people are going back to family farms and ranches. Um, our population is increasingly growing and going to um, increasingly grow. And so it looks, the out the outlook for the cattle business looks you know, pretty, good. pretty good. I mean, I think nobody's ever going to eat just impossible beef. Right. right. And I think, um, we're going to need more beef yep. and, and that goes into the grass fed. Like the, there's people that eat that and, and want that and that's great, but we can't have enough grass fed to feed America. So we have to have corn fed beef as well. Got it. And I'm sorry for listening to this and you like impossible meat, but I can't stand it. It's, I it's all, it. Yeah. I mean, it's no good, right? It's the taste. It's and, and it's not, if you're wanting to eat healthy, right? The ingredients in that, I mean, yeah. Not the healthy, probably. Getting into just a little bit about the environment, I think the second most pollution in America comes from basically cow farts. Is that right? Methane? So there's, I botch that? There's a little... Uh, methane's a huge push, right? There's okay. a, a little false narrative to that. Okay. Um, and this is something that the cattle organization fights every year. So NCBA is National Cattlemen's Beef Association, has lobbying teams, has um, you know board of directors and members that are actually you know, in Texas or in other states that go to D.C. that fight for this. And they've been fighting this for years and practicing sustainable agriculture forever. But this methane problem that that haunts the American cattle people, right? According to the EPA this year, because I I figured this question would come up, so I looked into this specifically. So according to the EPA this year, beef cattle from methane from beef cattle in the U.S. is only 2% of the greenhouse gases and emissions. And what's the media saying it is? I, and I don't, I Just mean, like they, a lot it's more. A, a lot more, right? We have all these cars on the road that are creating yeah. way more than cattle are. So is there any technology being built to like contain these cow farts? I mean, they're, they are trying to develop. <laughs> I like the way you, you, they're, I mean, the cattle producers are, are definitely trying to 
figure out a way to, you know, to lower this yeah. and to help this situation. And I, I don't, I mean, I, I'm not as well up yeah. to date on this as yeah. I should be, but um, I mean, they, they fight it every year. For sure. And it's not a huge amount. Like there's a little bit of a false narrative to it. Are there other, on the, on the subject of false narratives, are there other false narratives that if somebody was listening to this, you wanted to debunk, is there anything else that's talked about about the cattle industry that's simply probably overblown right like hsus is a huge um i mean they're probably one of the biggest threats to the cattle industry what's that um humane society of the united states okay they have a ton of income from commercials and people just donations i mean their donations are, are crazy what they get and i think they give less than one percent of their donations to your local humane societies right and the rest of it they use as marketing and yeah. and to fight yeah. this industry and why we don't really know. And they're and they're fighting like how cows are slaughtered or how they're raised or the conditions that they're yes. in. Yeah, they go up there. And they not just cattle. I mean, it's chicken, pork. Yeah. I mean, they fight every industry. So it's like them and PETA are against. Yes. Yeah. Got it. So let's just talk about technology for a little bit. Um, how has it progress is there anything kind of interesting going on across the industry as a whole that is making the business kind of more efficient and helping create better margins i mean every you know every business tries to find a better way to like produce more meat for a cheaper cost and yeah. that's like what all cattle people want to do i mean all these technologies is, we'll just touch on a few like AIing, artificial artificial insemination has been a technology for years but yeah. i mean they're, they're constantly bettering that i mean there's a few different companies that have really taken it to the next level, come to your place, do it for you. They create these tight calving period windows, right? So you're, you know, you, you, you turn a bull out and let's say your calving period is 60 days. I mean, if you AI and have a cleanup bull to follow up, you can have these 10 to 20 day calving period windows where all, a calving your, period? all your calves are born within 10 to 20 Got days it. of each other. Got it. And that's huge for when you sell because they're all going to weigh about the same. Got it. Where you're not going to have the the up and down weights. Um, probably one of the biggest prices in, um, or I'm sorry, probably one of the biggest boosts in prices for all grain fed cattle come from these like va these vaccination programs. So this is, when you say technology, like we've developed these NHTC certified natural, GAP certified. And so I'll just touch base on that just a little bit. So NHTC non-hormone treated cattle, right? So they're, they're getting no hormones for the life through they're going to be grain finished but no hormones right certified natural which you see on your when you buy a steak right that's certified natural angus beef or certified natural beef yeah those cattle they've never received hormones antibiotics and or animal byproducts so they're just and if one does so let's say you have a pen or a you raise all certified natural cattle and one gets sick, you're not going to let it die, right? You're going to give it a shot, administer a shot, move it to a different location, sell it, and then your your cattle are still certified natural. And then the GAP programs, which are probably that I'm not most familiar with, but it's crazy the amount of research and the amount of regulations to have a GAP animal. It's almost insane, but it, it pays to have it because people pay for it and, and people want to eat it. It's called the Global Animal Partnership. And I mean, they have to spend so much time of their life on a, on a field. They have to, you know, have a shed for for bad weather. The feeding facility has to have a shed in the pen. You probably you can't shoot a coyote on the place, right? Because uh, you can't. The it'll damage the the animals. Yeah, no, it's it's. Um, Do people actually like? It's all good and well to 
you know, do all these extra things that obviously cost more and they're going to make the beef more expensive, but you kind of know it's been raised like perfectly, like have numbers shown that people will actually pay up for meat that the cows live a better life up until the last day? For sure. So oh, cer really? certified natural beef is, it's to get into that, it's a little bit harder to get your cows to, uh, to qualify for certified natural beef. But once you do it, it's kind of a one-time process that you do every year, but it's a one-time entry process. And once you do it, it pays. I mean, it, it's going to cost you something up front the first year, but it definitely pays when you sell your calves. The funny part is, is I buy that stuff at Central Market or something, and I just think it's like better beef, but I had no idea it had anything to do with how they were raised or the conditions they were raised yeah, it's in. Definitely a, there's definitely value to it for because you're going to pay more for it, right? Yeah. You're buying it. You're paying more. The, the guy at the feed yards are paying more for it and the packers are paying more for it. Have you heard anything about, um, I read something when I was preparing for this where they're starting to like take cells out of calves and grow meat in labs, basically like they can grow parts of the cow. Is that actually really happening? I, or? I wouldn't, I don't know a lot about it. Yeah. I've read probably what you've, a yeah. little bit that you've read, but. All right. So for the rest, this might be kind of sporadic questions, but we had a lot of questions come in from folks that listen and so these might be in random order but they're all interesting uh, one of the questions was around kind of 1031ing in the cattle business so in real estate if i buy something and i sell it and i make a profit and i don't want to pay tax i can put my money in a third-party escrow identify something in 45 days and then close on it i don't have to pay tax how does that work in the cattle industry so in the cattle industry Cattle are personal property. Okay. So they're not real property. Okay. And so I, th I think it was like 2018, you cannot 1031 into personal property. Okay. So you can 1031 into ranch land, but you cannot 1031 into an actual animal because it's personal property. However, there's huge tax advantages to the cattle business. So yeah. like, you know, we, let's say we're, we have cattle in the feed yard, right? My yeah. family has, or we're feeding cattle and feed yards finance your so they finance your cattle and your feed for you less 20 percent on the cattle at the end of the year you can add up what feed costs that you have on your feed bill prepay that feed or pay that feed off and then prepay the next 90 days as long as you write the check by december 31st mm -hmm. you get to deduct that off oh wow at that year so you can you're basically just kicking the can down the road right like yep. any other like the 1031 exchange you're yep. um you're supposed delaying the the tax burden. Right. And that's what, I mean, cattle people do. Or they take, also, if you don't want to prepay feed or you're not feeding a cattle in a feed yard, you also build improvements to your place. So cattle pens together, cattle fences, barns, you can put it right back into your place, buy a tractor, some, you know, four-year facilities. And that, that's the way they basically delay tax burdens. So do cattle ranchers really ever pay taxes? Yeah. I mean, they, they do pay taxes, but they're yeah. definitely leaving that problem for somebody else. So so uh, you, there was a question that came in and I think it was off a co another conversation we had a couple weeks ago, but I think you were talking about like two brothers from Brazil or something that are like the biggest cattle yeah. ranchers in America. Well, they, they so they owned the, the JBS is okay. their company ah. and they owned um, the biggest feeding facility, which sold to a US owned company now. Yeah. And um, they still own the big, they're the biggest packing plant. In the country. In the U.S., yeah. Got it. And, and who, who are the big four? Do you know them off the top of your head? So the big four would be JBS, okay. Tyson, Cargill, and National Beef. Okay. And I mean, the, those guys, there's actually some some lawsuits against those guys. 
that happened after COVID. So uh, from the cattle producers, right? Yeah. For, you know, there was a huge, those guys were making a lot of money during COVID. Yeah. Um, and these cattle feeders were taking a lot of burden yep. of, the, 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 of their profits. What did the government do for cattle ranchers during COVID? So there's a, you know, there's the every year government subsidies yeah. that they give out. And that's definitely based on what you own. So it's it, it's the same amount per person. Right. Just if you own more, yeah. you get paid more. Yeah. But there was a couple of um, different ones. Yeah. So this year they did CFAP 1 and 2, which is the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. Mm-hmm. I'm most familiar with 2. So 2 was if you own cattle between April 16th to August 31st. You're, you're eligible until you've got to file by the end of the year. Got it to get $55 per head relief from the government. Got it. And you max out at 250,000. So you either, if you have 10,000 head, but you only, you're gonna max out around 4,500 head, 4,540 So for the the rancher that owned that 998,000 or something like that, what we talked about the biggest in the country, like. Yeah, so those guys are gonna get something. They're gonna get something and they're bigger and they, that's interesting. those guys uh, hedge everything. Yeah. And um, pretty much, I, th- I think, because Jordan that manages, he hedges all of his stuff. So I think they were kind of a hedger, which was really good for them. How far out can you hedge? So right now, like, you can hedge kind of pretty far out. But let's say, like, right now, if you're if you're feeding fat cattle, which live cattle is what they're, it's LE live cattle is their symbol. Um, we call them fat cattle. They're the ones going in the feed yard going to the packer. Yeah. Price is lower because they're heavier, right? Right. And you can hedge them like February 22nd. So like, let's say I put some cattle in the yard in August, right? right. And um, they're going to come out in March. Okay. So they're, they're going to be off the April board because there's no March board. There's February market and an April market. Okay. So my cattle are coming out in March. Yeah. They're going to be go off the April board. March cattle are somewhere around 117. And so if my break even is going to be 117 on mine, yeah. and the day I get them, I may not want to hedge because I may, uh, maybe I don't want to break even. Right. Some of those guys, like a feed yard, they're going to make money selling them, selling feed to themselves, right? Got it. So if they own the cattle, they're going to try to pencil in a profit on maybe a 35 to $40 head profit selling their own animal feed so they can hedge a break even on their cattle, hope they outperform, make $40 a head on the feed. And hopefully they outperform what they thought and make a little bit of money on the cattle as well. So you've been in the industry or been affiliated with the industry your whole life. Is there like a year, maybe a couple years that stand out as like the best years it, it was to be in the business? There's definitely a couple and, and one that just like kind of comes to mind. I was working for Superior Livestock. I was, you know, fresh out of college. It was 2012. We're in Ju- around July 4th. We're in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. It's actually a Fort Worth family, the TA Ranch Operations, uh, I believe owned by the Pace family here in town. They have a ranch in Saratoga, Wyoming. Their calves are always real thin and hard, and that's a term that you'll use. The, the first initial gain is the best gain on cattle, right? And they sell their calves thin and hard. They always top the market. And these calves started, and, you know, we thought they, I think they start them sub $2, right? Uh, a pound. And they sell for ever. I mean, it, it just seems like it's going on forever and it's it's a slow process, but it's it's obviously quick because it's an auctioneer and it goes to, I think they sold for like 285 or 286, which oh, was wow. insane. I mean, it was like, that is the first time I remember the market being just insane that year. And why? Cash over futures, right? I mean, these guys were paying more than 
probably yeah. more than market uh, right. for these cattle because they liked them. Yeah. They knew they would perform well. They knew they would outperform kind of the break even. And so, and they wanted them. And yeah. there were a couple of guys that have had them and the guys that had it on, have had them liked them. And yeah. it was just, you know, the market market driven, right? Getting back real quick to the major producers, the Packers, do they kind of dominate the industry or like, I mean, does it all revolve around them or does it all revolve around the cattle rancher? They definitely dominate the industry. Yeah. It's, it's just like um, any business when there's four buyers for yeah. the end product, like, you know, they control what, what's going to happen. I mean, they tell you what they're going to pay and you either take it or leave it. And some of them may not be taking any cattle that week or they may already be full for the week. And so now you're down to three and it, it's just, I mean, Market's the market, right? But right. they they have a huge control huge influence. So, how would you value a cattle operation? Is it like a price per head? Is it the 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 value of the land plus the amount of income they generate? Like, if you were if your family was going to sell its cattle operation, like how would a buyer value it? So, a stalker operation would probably be pretty hard to value, right? Okay. Just because. I mean, so let's just let's start. Take like a feed yard or something. Yeah, you're going to value the the land. Okay. So on a ranch, you're going to value the land. You're going to value the improvements on the land. So the barns, the fences, fences, you know, the facilities, the gathering facilities. And if if you're buying a whole operation, right, you're going to value the equipment. Yeah. Um, so you, you'll have to have somebody come out and value that. You're also going to put value on a stalker. So you're buying and selling, right? Um, and you're always, if you're like us, you're always buying and selling. So it's right. going to be hard to value the animal. Now, if you have a cow-calf operation, look, it's going to be easier to value because you're just going to figure out the quality of the cows, the age of the cows, and you're going to put a number on the cows. So you so you can't just value it based off of like the profit every year because some years they lose, right? I mean, yeah. the, the ranches that are successful are these guys that have, you know, have their land paid for and have low overhead. And, and on the good years, they... They make good money on the bad years. They're able to hang in there because they're overheads. The ones right. you see get in trouble are where they get, you know, a lot of debt built up. Their overheads increasingly uh, high for a cattle operation. I mean, and it's weird. Like, um, used to a guy with 350 cows, right? He could raise a family and send his kids to college, buy new vehicles. It was great. And now you talk to these bankers that, that bank these small town guys with 350 cows that even if they inherited the land and they don't have a land cost, it's hard for a guy with 350 cows to to pay himself a living and, you know, buy a new pickup every three years. Yep. Like it, it's just cattle prices have not increased enough and everything else has increased, right? Um, all your equipment has increased, your vehicles have increased, and it, it's just a different game. So... Trump made a uh, deal with China, a trade deal that really impacted kind of the cattle industry, the beef industry. What kind of went into that deal and why was it important? So there, there was initial trade deal was kind of done in 2017. Okay. And it was a huge deal for, I mean, it's a game changer for the cattle industry. I mean, American beef had been banned from China for around 14 years, 14, 15 years. Wow. Now it's open. And in January 1 was a huge, like, I mean, the restrictions are less. They're able to get beef to China. These these consumers that have never had it are yep. are getting to getting to try beef, and it's um it's huge for the industry. And as as you said, we we have a continued growing population. Yeah, and it, the future looks bright for the beef business. Yeah, I mean, one thing I learned while we were going through this is one of the first things that developing nations 
uh, do as they're kind of coming out of poverty is like beef becomes a huge part of their diet. It's seen as like a delicacy in this. I think in America, we take it for granted. Yeah. And they never um, had a chance to have it. And, yep. I mean, we have it. And the world's getting better and countries are coming out of poverty. And so that's probably going to bode well for beef. Okay. This is an interesting question. If, if you had, uh, I'll pick a big number, a hundred million dollars or a billion, it doesn't really matter. And you had to invest it in the cattle business. It doesn't have to be a cattle rancher. You could invest in some technology. You could invest in any part of the industry. You can invest in the logistics trucking operation. Is there a part of the industry that you would put money into that you see as like super profitable or uh, have a lot of upside? Look, this the cattle business, um, that's a really interesting question that I've actually never put any thought into yeah. at all. Um, however, you know, I, I would always have some sort of invested interest in the cattle business just because that's I grew up in it. And this business is a you have to love the business to be in it. Yeah. There's very few outsized profits in the cattle business. And yeah. so there's really no like what I would say like great areas to put it in. But if you talked about all of them you talked about, I mean Farming, I'm, I, I've never been huge in farming, but a lot of people, you know, invest a lot of capital in farming. I mean, you can burn a lot of capital just on equipment and farming, right? Yep. But for me, my love for the cattle feeding industry, for the stalker industry, the transportation industry, is that's one of the biggest costs of our business is transportation. And fuel prices, oil and gas prices dictate that for yep. us. Um, uh, when oil's down, you know, we can transport them cheaper. But unfortunately, a lot of times the cattle futures market follows the oil market. And yep. so... When they're down, we're down, right? Yeah. Um, but to put it in one part of the business, I don't know where I would, what I would pick would be the most profitable. Yeah. But um, you definitely, you know, my family does it to make a living, right? Yeah. Um, so they do it to make a profit. Right. But you have to have a love for the business yeah. or you would not be in the cattle business. There's no, there's nobody that probably just gets in it that doesn't have some sort of love for it. If they do, they, they don't stay in it long. So like your family's in it and obviously all run a great business, have been for multiple decades, if not generations. And you talk about it being like this business that you have to love to be in. Walk me through like what a day of a of a ranch hand is like, because they really have to love the business to be in it because they're probably not highly paid. They're worked really hard. Um, like what's a day in their life look like? So, um, you know, as you, definitely underpaid, probably. Yeah. Um, working conditions are not great. Um, I'll just kind of walk you through. We have a few different guys that work for us. Um, some of them have been there for a long time. Some of them are family, right? Yeah. Some of them are my granddad's brother-in-law. And um, we've got a guy that retired. He runs our feed truck and our farming operation. He's in his 70s, so we're probably not going to have him much longer. But yeah. he's like this trustworthy guy. He's not aggressive, as far as like, I mean, he's older, so he's, but he is like consistently getting things done. Yeah. Like, and he runs our farming operation and the feeding operation, feeding all the cattle at, at home. So we also supplement our cattle at home. And then um, let's say we have a couple of boys um, that process cattle all day long. So their job is once we receive cattle in our order buying operation for customers, we also offer for a small fee at processing. Um, so we have, you know, a shoot, you put them in. As we said before, you you castrate the bulls, you give administer all the kind of generic medicines that you give, uh, you brand them for the customer and put their ear tag in them. And then we have the, the truck drivers. So, um, you know, we've got some cattle trucks that we operate um, and those guys live a life uh, 
that's pretty tough, right? I mean, they haul cattle, they haul live products. So where if you're a freight guy and you get tired and you lay down and, and go to sleep, and then when you you know, you wake up, you go again with a live product on, you have to go. And if you lay down and go to sleep and work for my granddad, you're probably with a live animal on the truck, you're probably not going to have a job when you get home. People don't mess around with old cowboys. <laughs> That's one thing uh, I've learned on this episode. A question came in, like, what does it cost? Uh, what's the going rate to lease land to put your cattle on? So it depends on completely what type of land you're looking at, right? right. So if you're looking at grassland for cows, and there's multiple different ways to do it. You may pay by the head. Yep. You may pay by the gain per pound for your calves on the grass, or you may lease it by the acre. So we, we lease a place that neighbors ours that they don't want to sell. They just want to lease it. It's a pretty reasonable lease. It's I think it's fourteen seventy five an acre. So fourteen dollars and seventy five cents per per year per acre, <laughs> um, which is pretty reasonable. However, when you buy like the input cost, so in our area, surface is going to trade somewhere between seventeen hundred to two thousand an acre. Yeah. But if you go to like Kingfisher, Oklahoma, Okarchi, Oklahoma, where I call like you know wheat cattle country for Oklahoma, where these guys are they they farm wheat, but they also run cattle on it. I mean. That's kind of the the oil and gas play is right there on kind of Kingfisher County line. Mm -hmm. And those guys have started paying around 3,000 an acre for farmland, which is solely driven by an influx of cash in the in the community from oil and gas. Mm -hmm. And these guys, all they've done their whole life is farm, right? So they want more land. They're just, they're overpaying. Then they set the market and they they raise the price of their land. Yep. And that guy, the the hedge fund guy that puts all his cattle on different feed yards, Remind me again, how is he How is he paying the feed yard? What's the feed yard charging him? Is it just for feed or does he lease part of the feed yard? So, no, it's for feed. It's okay. feed cost. So, so much per head. Basically, so like, you know, you figure all your cost in and kind of when you when you figure your break even on your cattle. So when they go in, they break even at whatever. The cost to gain, you know, it could be 70 to 80 cents right now yeah. per pound is what it's costing to gain. Yep. And then as far as... Stalker cattle on wheat, that's another thing that a lot of people lease, um, especially in Texas and Oklahoma. You know, you're a wheat farmer, you you plant your wheat, you're going to harvest it, or you just plant it for graze out, but you don't want to really take the risk. So you're going to you're gonna let somebody put cattle on you, yep. and you're going to charge them somewhere around, you know, I don't know what this year, what it's going to go for, but somewhere around 50 to 55 cents a pound is what they're going to pay you for every pound gain. So they'll weigh them going in, weigh them going out. And whatever they gained while they're there, they're going to make 55, 50 to 55 cents a pound. So as like the decades have gone by, we found ways to make food for cheaper and cheaper. I mean, there's a lot of just processed stuff that's just total crap. The goal of the cattle rancher is to produce better beef at a cheaper cost. But like at what point have you gone too far and you're just making bad beef? Yeah. So that now that you asked that question, I'll let me... And I may take it into a different direction, but we can answer that as if we cool. can. So like cattle ranchers and farmers, obviously, they eat the same beef, right? Yeah. And they care more about their product than you do yeah. because it's their livelihood. It's it's how they make their living. So they're going to take as good a care of these animals as they can, right? They're going to make sure they live. They're going to feed them as good a product as they can. And we're feeding them better and better products every year. And the, and the feed that we feed them, you know, it's grass, corn, hay, it's... It's not like we're inputting a bunch of garbage or or bad product into their bodies, right? Right. Like like as humans, we can eat junk food. Like these cattle are eating, hell, you know, grass, 
corn, hay, foods that we can't eat. Yep. And they're able to convert that into steak, right? Or, yep. or beef that we eat. Um, and so, and as far as people like cattle ranchers and, and cattle feeders wanting more pounds per head, yeah, that's of course, because that's how they, the small margins in the business, right? They want to get as many pounds and have on an animal as they can. Yep. But when that animal's ready to be harvested, and processed and slaughtered, he's gone. Like yeah. they're not going to feed him any longer because yep. th they hit a certain point where they're just not going to grow anymore. Got right? it. Do cattle ranchers pay insurance for like if the, if cattle's die or uh, there's famine, like are there insurance policies um, that are pretty uh, standard in the industry or no? So there's normal subsidies that are paid out every October, right? Yeah. Not counting what we talked about earlier, the CFAP. This is the kind of the ARC or the PLC, which is the price loss coverage. And so these programs provide financial you know, assistance to farmers and ranchers. So it's, yeah. it's based on, I think it's based on the wheat prices of the year and they, they give it to these farmers. If you plant wheat, they give it to you based on how many acres you plant. And you can also get crop insurance if you're farming. We don't farm for harvest, so we don't right. pay for any crop insurance. I think the government backs those, you know, farming those crop insurance companies yeah. um, you can also get drought insurance we don't buy that a lot of people maybe in far west texas may participate in some of the drought insurance we don't we get enough rain in oklahoma where and if we don't we go through a drought the government has a, a subsidy program for a drought issue that year and it's not in these sub you know a lot of organizations are like these farmers and ranchers get all these government these government subsidies and they're making so much money. I mean, these government subsidies are literally lifelines to these guys. Yeah. They're basically just keeping them in business so they can provide food and for American people and, yeah. and continue to do so next year, right? Yeah. And does every rancher take a subsidy? Not every rancher, but yeah. if you qualify for it, most do. Like um, do y'all? We do. It's public knowledge. Yeah. Um, you can kind of Google your county. Yeah. And um, the FSA Farm Service Agency publicizes how much each rancher took that year. And it's definitely based on how much you have, how many cattle you have, how much wheat, how many acres of wheat you've planted. It's all kind of public knowledge. And how far are we from a point in time where there's just not enough people left in the industry? Like it sounds like nobody's really getting into it like they were maybe 50 years ago. I mean, in 30 years, is there going to be anybody around? You hear like you know, and for my whole life, like people are getting out of it. Nobody's staying in it, right? And that, and that's true to the fact that there's less and less 40 to 50. Just like I said, you know, when my granddad, when I was growing up, my dad and granddad were making these livestock auctions. They would last all night long or most of the night. And now they're over with or in the early evening. There's less and less of those 40 to 60 head people selling those calves. Yeah. And you can see it that way yeah. if you view it that way. But the surface is getting utilized yeah. with cattle people. It's just a bigger operation, right? Yeah. Two personal questions. What's your favorite cut of beef? Perfect cut of beef for me is a New York strip steak. I think it has the perfect amount of flavor, perfect amount of fat. Um, you know, fillet's a little too lean for me and a ribeye may be a little too fat. So I'm kind of a strip guy. All right. What is the best advice you've ever been given kind of related to the cattle industry? The best advice from the cattle industry that I've ever been given will relate to anything, right? Yeah. Uh, my granddad's kind of a hard ass. Uh, however, he doesn't cuss or drink. Okay. Works every day. It's get up, show up, and work hard. And that that's transferable that's to every part of life. To every part of life. Uh, I showed up, a funny story, uh, I was in college, right? And 
we start, as you know, I mean, you stay out a little bit later and yeah. getting up early is kind of a, an issue, right? And I, I come home for my freshman year, first weekend home. And he said, you know, be here at six in the morning. We're shipping cattle. I see you here at six. Set my alarm. Um, obviously sleep through it. Wake up at like seven ten. I mean, you don't even brush my teeth. Just clothes on out the door. Get there. And he sends me home and says, I, I told you to be here at six. I said, no, I'm here. We're going to work. And he's like, I don't need you. Go home. <laughs> and on Sunday, before I went back to college, uh, you know, I was at my parents' house and he came over and he's like, don't ever show up late again. And if you ever, ever want to work with me, you won't be late. I and, love it. And so, I mean, it was kind of a, it, it makes you feel bad, right? Yeah. So you, you don't like, want to disappoint your grandfather. Yeah, you don't want to disappoint him. I can't wait to meet Ronnie. <laughs> well, Dude, thanks for sitting with me on this uh, episode. It's been awesome. Thanks for having me. I mean, it's fun to talk about your passions and yeah. how you grew up. And Dude, this is the Wild West. And I think we not a lot of people know about an industry that literally feeds us every single day. Yeah. And there's a lot of, and that you and I have buddies that have ranches and go to them. It's just a different, yep. a different world. If you, if you use that ranch for your sole income. For sure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. Hey everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.